have a seat. When I have the opportunity to bring a message on Sunday morning, the hardest part for me is this, the greeting. I really would like to have something better than just good morning, welcome to Paseo del Rey, open up your Bibles and get started. Last week would have been great. It's last Sunday, Merry Christmas. And so we're all nice and warm, looking forward to Christmas. It's great. And next week would be great too, because it's Happy New Year. We're looking forward to new things. And so that's exciting. But today I'm a bit stuck. We're in that kind of transition time, and and all I can say is, it's bacon day. (laughs) Seriously, seriously, today, December 30th, is bacon day. It's not International Bacon Day. See, that's a different day. We can't celebrate with the rest of the world, you know, because we have a different bacon day than International Bacon Day. (laughs) But, so, let me just say... um, Merry Bacon Day to you. (laughs) Yeah, it's great. But we are in this this time of transition, right? Where we have this Sunday, where we have an opportunity to look back at the year and yet still look forward to what's to come too. And as we do, it's good to just remember, particularly for us here at Paseo Del Rey Church, how God has brought us to this point, right? It was a good year for us. Remember back in July when we celebrated Pastor Gary and April's 39 years of ministry here? Wasn't that a sweet time? That was good. And how we encouraged them as, as Pastor Gary has gone on to bring the gospel and to bring God's word to the African pastors in Zambia teaching them how to open up God's Word and to preach it truly and accurately, to exegete the passage correctly. And that's just such a great thing. And how, how God has brought to us Pastor Shelton and Amy and the kids, that's great. And our search team that did such a wonderful job working hard, diligently, praying, interviewing, researching, lots of hours that were spent, and they, they knocked it out of the park. And so we've had a good year. And yet, for some of us individually, it's been a difficult year, right? We know that. Some of you have suffered financial difficulties, broken relationships that don't seem to have any reconciliation in sight, the sudden death of a loved one. And some of these things may have, have strengthened us in character, but others have caused great distress to our faith and perhaps bringing great doubt. And in times like this, it's what do we, where do we turn? Where do we turn to, to, to know when I thought, God, I thought I knew you, And now I wonder, who are you really? And I wonder who I am in my relationship with you. Where do I go for these kinds of things? Here at Paseo del Rey, we go to the Bible. 
We believe that the Bible is that standard, is that canon, the rule for which we can always go back to and know what is true. And yet with that, during this year, I've had many conversations, some in groups and some with individuals. And though they go, maybe it's just something like this. that says, John, I believe without a doubt that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that he rose from the dead, that he died, and he died for my sins. I believe that. And I believe in the Trinity. And I believe all of these things, and yet I have a really difficult time trusting that what the Bible says is true and relevant today. And so sometimes I get these questions that are, that are something like this. How do I know that maybe just a really creative person didn't write this all down six or seven hundred years ago? And, and how do I know that when I pick up my Bible, that what I'm reading is really what was written originally, what the original authors, what they wrote down? And, and what about all these errors in the Bible? I mean, I hear there's lots of errors in the Bible. So how can I trust the Bible to be trustworthy if there's all of these errors? And who decided that there's these 66 books are the ones that ought to be in the Bible? I mean, I watch History Channel, and, and there's a Gospel of Judas. Why isn't Gospel of Judas in there? Well, I think you, that one's pretty easy. But Gospel of Thomas. I mean, I mean just because Thomas doubted, we should kick his gospel out of the... About, right? Right? And, you know, and some of these. And, and aren't the Bible's teachings a bit outdated? Isn't the morality there? I mean, slavery, come on. Really? And this chauvinism that's in the Bible, what, what's up with that? And if the Bible is true, then why is it it seems like on the same passage, I can hear 10 people give 10 different ideas on what it really says. So how am I to trust this? Well, it's far too much for us to chew on this morning, but there's a few of these things that I do want to, to, to address and to take a look at. Because it's the foundation of what we believe. I believe in God the Father. We sang all of these things. But where do we get this stuff? We get it from, from God's Word. We get it from the Bible. And so if the Bible is not that standard, if it's not that rock that we can trust, that we can stand on, then where do I go? See, it's God's primary way that He communicates with us. It's not the only way, but it's his number one and primary way that he communicates to us. So we need to be able to trust it, and yet not blindly. We need to be able to take a look and say, no, this is, this is it. God talked to Joshua in Joshua 1.8, and he said, Joshua, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you'll be prosperous and successful. Okay? So God says that you want to you understand my word. You want to, it's the foundation of your life as you lead my people. And we believe that God's word is inspired. It's, it's God breathed. The Holy Spirit breathed into 
the writers and gave them the words using their character, their character, using their, their, their education, using their personality, using the nuances of who they are. God breathed into them and gave us these words. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says this, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped. See, it's God-breathed. God-breathed. The early church understood this too. They read, they quoted, they collected, and they distributed the, 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 the early writings of the apostles. Okay. They knew that right from the beginning. So somebody writing this six or seven hundred years ago, no, look at the archaeological evidence goes way, 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 way back before that. Now, maybe it was a, cre- a, a, a creative person in 400 A.D., but that's what we have evidence of. Science shows us that. Archaeologically, we know that. It wasn't something that was written a few hundred years ago for us. It was written way back when. So how do we know what was originally written? How do we know that? Well, there's the science of textual criticism. Okay? You got the spider graph up. Don't worry what the words are on that. It's, a, it's, a, it's an eye chart for me, even if I'm standing here. Okay? But what textual criticism is, is it takes ancient documents. It takes the manuscripts of ancient documents, and it, and, and it, it puts these things together like a puzzle. Okay? Almost like a family tree. That's why I show that there. It's because it's taking, where were these, these manuscripts found? And what's the relationships between them? Okay, relationships meaning that there's some variances that are going on in between the manuscripts. Okay, and so they analyze these variances and and the differences. And from that, they're able to determine and go back to what they say the original autograph was. The autograph meaning what what was originally written. Okay, and they're able to go back to that. And even though the autograph is gone... It's, it's, you, you understand that, right? We don't have what was originally written by Paul or Luke or John or Mark. None of them. They're all gone. We don't, so we don't know. We can't point to it and say, oh, there it is. Okay? I think God had really good reason for that. We'd be doing some real knucklehead things like worshiping it if it was still here. Right? We, 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 we would have seen that kind of thing before. But we don't have that. Now, so what, this, what scholars do is, is they take then um, the, 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 what copies there are and they analyze these things. Now, if we take um, Julius Caesar's uh, Gaelic War, okay, that, that document, there's 10 copies of that that are available, okay? And the, the earliest wo- a copy of that was is, is found, it was A.D. 900, okay? Now, Julius Caesar wrote this somewhere in the 50, uh, uh, 50 B.C. So the difference between when it was originally written and when the latest or the earliest copy of it is, is about 950 years. And yet, scholars with these 10 different manuscripts, the earliest one being A.D. 900, 
They're able to put the pieces together, do the comparisons, and say with a high degree of confidence that what you're reading today, now granted in English, there's a whole translation thing, we'll get to that, but what you read today in the Gaelic War is what Julius Caesar originally wrote in 50 BC. High degree of confidence in that. Now, how does that compare to the New Testament? So the New Testament, written somewhere in 40 to 100 BC, depending on which of the books it is, okay? The latest, and I'm just going to talk about full manuscripts here. The the earliest full manuscript is somewhere around 350 AD. Now, there's pieces that are less, that are in the 125 pieces of the book of John that there are. But, but let's just go with the 350. Now, what's the difference in the time span there? About 250 years is what there is. Now, you say, well, wow, that's, that's a long time. Okay. And, and how did it get to these documents here? Because the originals were copied, okay, and then copies of copies of copies of copies of copies, and more copies and more copies and more copies to what we have now is over 5,000 Greek manuscripts of the Bible. Now, that's a lot of data. And so they take these data, and of course, with computers today also, they're able to do really wonderful things. But they take these manuscripts and they do these comparisons and the the differences that there are in these. And they're able to put them together and say that this is a parent document here, and these are kind of the children documents of that one. And these were found over in this portion of the Middle East. And then these documents were found over here. And look how they compare to these over here. And this, and this, and they put all of that together. And they are certain that what we read now in our Bible, in the, in the Greek, is what was originally written. Even though we don't have what was originally written. So the British Museum professor, Sir um, Frederick Keenan, he says this, that they, we are so certain about this, that they, with all of this data that's available, the interval between the dates of original composition and the earliest extent or available evidence becomes so small as to be, in fact, negligible. Okay? Now you say, well, okay, whoa, 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 wait a minute, John. You're suggesting that the Bible is inerrant, meaning it, it has no errors. And yet you just got done talking about that there's variances, and variances sound like differences, and differences sound like errors to me. So I've, how is it that the Bible is inerrant if you've got all of these errors? And in fact, there's a, there's a gentleman, Bart Ehrman, who in his book says that there are over 400,000 errors in the Bible. You may have heard that. Perhaps you've heard that before. There's thousands and thousands and thousands of errors in the Bible. And yes, to an extent, that's true. Okay, 400,000? Perhaps, perhaps there is. But how does he get there? He gets there because he says, well, in all of these, in this, in this uh, uh, document here, this, this manuscript that we have, there was a plural versus a singular error. That we, and we know that. We, we've seen that. And, and so that er, there's an error there. Okay, is that one error? Well, no, because there's 3,000 other copies of the manuscript that, that copied the same error down. Oh, so that's 3,000 errors that you have in the Bible. 
Okay, so if you use that same logic, this gentleman's book, by the way, has 16 typos in it. Okay, the first printing had 100,000 printing. Okay, so if there's 16 and there's 100,000 documents out there, that's 1.6 million errors he has in his book. Okay, see, that doesn't make sense, right? You, you see that? So there's not 400,000 errors in the Bible. There are, there are errors that we find in the manuscripts. And that's because with the variants, they're able then to put that together to say, this is what was originally written to the degree that um, uh, uh, Geyser and Nix in their book, this one here, I, 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 this is a great book, From God to Us, How We Got Our Bible, says this, not only is the Bible the most well-preserved book to survive from the ancient world, its variant readings of significance amount to less than one-half of one percent, none of which affect any basic Christian doctrine. Our doctrine, what we believe, I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in God the Father, I believe that God is love, I believe all of these tenets of our faith, none are compromised whatsoever because of the errors that are in the Bible. Because 40,000 is really 4,000, because it's an S and not an S at the end, these things are minute and make no difference to what our faith is. You can trust God's word for your life. It's trustworthy. And it wasn't written 600 years ago. It was written by the, by the uh, apostles and, and by Paul. And even early on, they recognized that this was God-breathed scripture. Now, Ken, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, um, but the idea, where do we get 66 books, and how did this all happen, and who were, the, you know, it was at these, these councils that they uh, determined what were the books that are in the Bible and which ones weren't. I, I, I don't have time to spend a lot of time on that, but the, it wasn't a matter of, of these people determining that. God determined what books are in the Bible. Man only discovered what they are. And like I said, from the early on, the church knew early on, it recognized what was God-breathed scripture. And it collected those, and it kept those. And so what these councils did was merely to codify what the early communities had already done, what they had already gathered, and said, this is scripture. And so these councils didn't determine that themselves. F.F. F. Bruce in his book, The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable, says, the New Testament books did not become authoritative for the church because they were formally um, included in the canonical list. On the contrary, the church included them in her canon because she already regarded them as divinely inspired, recognizing their innate worth and general apostolic authority, direct or indirect. What the first ecclesiastical councils to classify the canonical books did was not to impose something new upon the Christian communities, but to codify what was already the general practice of those communities. Okay? So it wasn't that some, some congress got together and said, well, this is what it's going to be. 
All they did was recognize what was already known to be. So what about this idea of, you know, I, I hear too, and, and, and I, 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 you know, I sometimes, doesn't it seem like anyone can make the Bible say whatever they want, right? Don't you, don't you wonder about that? How can I know what the Bible really means? And so this gets us into the area of, of, of biblical interpretation. And there's two kind of key words there. There's exegesis and hermeneutics, big words. You can walk out with those and now you can say, wow, I know a lot about Bible interpretation. So exegesis, what that means is, is that, is that the, um, the, the person studying the Bible needs to try and go back in time Back to what when it was originally written and understand who the author was, what was the author trying to say to that audience. Now, that, that, that's, that's important. I, I want to make sure we understand that. We're trying to figure out what did the author say to that audience. Okay, r- realize this. 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians was written to the church in Corinth Corinth, in about A.D. 60. It was not written to you. Okay? No kidding. Wasn't written to me. Wasn't written to you. In fact, none of the Bible was written to you. It was written for you. But none of it was written to you. So it's not about you. And so as a, as a Bible learner, You need to try to understand what did Paul, what was he trying to say to the church in Corinth back at that time? What was the culture that was going on at that time? What was the education of the people at that time? What were they going through? What was happening? What was history at that time? What else was happening in the world at that time? What was going on? So you, tra- you have to transport back to that time and understand what was happening, okay? And then hermeneutics is a, a second part of that. If you differentiate the two, some don't differentiate the two, but if you differentiate the two, then what that is is then coming back to today and saying, okay, the truth that Paul was trying to communicate then, how does that apply today? And how do I take that truth and, and make it meaningful in my life today. Okay? So this idea about slavery. We get stuck in our head often about the African slavery that happens in America. That happened in America. Happens in America. And how wrong and bad that was. But that's not what Paul's talking about in Colossians when he says, Obey your masters. And you think, oh my God, is Paul condoning slavery? Yep, you bet he was. The slavery that was the kind of slavery 2,000 years ago, not 300 years ago here in America. He was talking about what was happening in Rome back in that time. And it was much different than what we have in our mind. So you, 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 you need to understand these things and then take these principles and bring them to today and and. and understand how does that apply to me today. Um, You'll see there that there's a lot of different ways that we can read the Bible also. And we can get stuck on some of these things. 
Am I, am I to read this literally or am I to read this figuratively? Okay, and that's not, that's not new to us, right? I mean, you open up a, a, a Valentine's card and it says, Oh, my love, you make my heart pop. You don't call 911, <laughs> right? That doesn't make any sense. You, want, you know literal and figurative. The Bible's no different. It's full of poetry. Psalm is full of poetry. There's a lot of that. And so you, you, you interpret that accordingly. Okay, if you're walking in Washington, D.C., and somebody says, hey, can you tell me where the White House is? You don't say, well, let's see, is that the one on the corner of 3rd and Jefferson? Or is it the other one on Pennsylvania Avenue? You know which one they mean, right? It's an idiom, okay? Now, it's difficult for us because we don't, as we read the, Old, the New Testament or Old Testament, it's hard for us to know, well, what was an idiom back then? Because it was 2,000 years ago. It's easy for us to understand White House now, but what about some of these other things and to understand that they were idioms, okay? Uh, the other thing is, not everything written in the Bible, God condones, okay? So it says in the Bible that Satan said that God surely didn't tell you that, Eve, okay? But that's a lie of Satan, now, the Bible is correct in that Satan said that, but it's not condoning the fact that Satan lied, okay? So, we, we have to watch that too. And, and, and just because we read that uh, in the Old Testament where people are being wiped out all over the place, that God is condoning all of these kinds of things. In some cases, God is condoning that, and there's other reasons that we would speak to that, Okay? But just because it's written as narrative in the Bible doesn't necessarily make it that God has condoned this. Okay, so what about, so uh, one, one thing though, when we have poor exegesis, when we don't do our proper due diligence and understand what the Bible is saying, it leads to some nasty things. It leads to Mormons baptizing the dead. It leads to Jehovah, Witness, Jehovah Witnesses denying the deity of Jesus. It leads snake handlers in a bad way when they look at Mark 16, 18. And some bad consequences of that. And it leads us, it leads prosperity preachers to claim that the American dream is the Christian right. All of these things because we didn't properly do our analysis of God's Word. And I know you might say, well, how am I supposed to know all this stuff? There's a lot of resource available for us. And I would encourage us all, as we go into the new year, as we open up God's Word, that we aren't intellectual or biblical sloths, that we do due diligence that we don't take what Pastor Shelton says or what I say or what anybody else says as truth. Figure it out yourself like the Bereans did when they questioned Paul and they, 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 they said, okay, we're, we're just, nice word, Paul. Just want to double check this in Scripture. Make sure you're on track right. Okay? If you're going to test Paul, test all the rest of us also that are bringing God's word to us. Always do that. Now, what about contradictions? Aren't there a lot of contradictions in the Bible? Well, 
Yeah, kind of. But again, do your work. Okay, and two things I just want to address here. One is there's perspective. If we were all to disperse from here and we went out, we saw an accident out on the corner here. And four of us were, and four of us were standing on four different corners. We would see it from four different perspectives. We would also see it because we have different bias in our own lives. We would also see it because we have this tendency to see things certain ways. Some of us may be colorblind. Some of us aren't colorblind. We see things different ways. The Gospels, although there's differences in between them, are coming from different perspectives. And the other thing is, is that the authors have a different emphasis. Okay? Matthew, when he gives his version of the Gospel, he's talking to the Jews that's his focus. He's talking to Jewish people, and he's trying to impress upon them that Jesus is the king. Okay? Now, John, he's talking to new believers and unbelievers. And so he comes from a different perspective. Okay? So we need to understand this. And we, we don't have a lot of time to get into, well, what contradictions and, you know, these things. But we can explore that more. The other thing, though, that I'd like to touch on is science. What about science in the Bible? It seems like the science in the Bible, they're always at odds. And so I'd like to say a few things there. One is, the Bible's not a science book. Okay? It wasn't intended as a science book. Okay? Now, I'm not saying that it's going to say things that are scientifically incorrect. I'm not saying that either. But it isn't coming across as a science book. The other thing is, remember, we said that we're trying to understand what was originally written to the original audience. Now, that original audience did not have, it is 1121. Can somebody tell me, you have something different than 1121? You all have 1121 if you open up your phone right now, right? Okay. They did not. They said, oh, uh, noonish. Plus or minus an hour and a half? I don't know, right? See, they, they lived in a different time with different technologies, different understandings. And the Bible wasn't to come into them to, hey, let me explain to you hydrology and how it works in the world. The rain goes up, it you know, gets in the clouds, comes back down on the ground, goes into the ground, circles back around, and there's a cycle of hydrology, okay? We happen to have learned that kind of science in about 1600. The Bible talked about it 2,500 years before that. Science is always trying to catch up with what the Bible says. In John chapter 5, there's the story of the uh, lame man at the pool of Bethesda. Now, it's interesting that, that if, the, if these stories were just made up, why would the author have said that it was right close to the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem. Okay, and why would he have said that there were five colonnades? That's getting awful specific. You know, and you can check that kind of thing, right? And in fact, they did check. Archaeologists checked that. And guess what? They dug all around where the, the Sheep Gate was. They found no pool. There was no pool there. There was no colonnades there. And they said, see, the Bible is incorrect. It's made a mistake again. And then 
in the mid-1950s, they dug deeper. And guess what they found? A pool in Bethesda and five roofed colonnades. Once again, science was trying to catch up. In Psalm 19.6, it says that the sun is traveling from one end of the heavens to the other. And scientists before 1950 said, look it, everybody knows the earth travels around the sun, not the sun traveling around the earth going from one end of the heavens to the other. What kind of nonsense? See, the Bible is so ridiculous. And then in the 50s, again, 1949 actually, the Big Bang Theory comes out. And what they discovered was, is that the heaven, that the sun is traveling from one end of the heavens to the other, dragging the earth along with it, right? Again, we're just wrong in our perspective on this. And once again, even though it was Psalms and this poetry, it is not incorrect. Science, once again, is trying to catch up with what the Bible is saying to be true. And it's not, although it's not speaking as a science book, it is yet to be proven to be incorrect from a scientific standpoint. So, last thing I want to just quick touch on. Why are there so many different versions of the Bible? I mean, if you're the Bible that you have here, it's the New International Version. Some people prefer the English Standard Version. There's the New American Standard Version. There's the New Easy Readers New International Version. There's the um, hip-hop version. There, seriously, no, there is. There's a pig Latin version of the Bible. Yep. Uh, these are all, yeah, you can, you can, there's hundreds of versions of the Bible. Why do we need different versions of the Bible? Well, one is, I mean, why couldn't you, we just live with the King James Version, right? Because that's not very easy for us, right? That's 400-year-old language. So we want, we want the versions to keep up with the language that we're speaking today. But the other thing is, is that you'll see that the different types that there are. So we have that there is way kind of to the left there, the idea of word for word. Those of you that speak multiple languages, you know that word for word translation doesn't always work out so well though, right? When you try to do that. And so what, what do you do instead? You really, you kind of move over to the more in the middle there where, where you take the thought and you take the thought for thought and you translate that that way. And so that's what we typically, where we typically are. You can see the NIV there is in the thought for thought, um, the New Living Bible uh, in the thought for thought there. Um, uh, one, my, my, a favorite of my translation actually is the NLT, the New Living tr uh, Translation. I, I enjoy that. Um, it kind of speaks to me just the way that the language is and the wording that's used. I guess I just connect with that better. And then you go way over to the right and you have a, what is a paraphrase. So that's like the Message Bible. Message Bible written by just one person, Eugene Peterson. You know, and, 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 but it, it, sometimes it's nice to be able to read that too. Not for study, but just for contemplation and, and just for you know, reading and, and, and getting another perspective also. That sometimes that's nice, you know. So there, there's lots of reasons for that, um, why we have different translations. Okay, so, so what? Why does this matter? Why does all this matter? 
Because it's the foundation of what we believe. If you can't trust the Bible to be true, how can you say anything of what we sang? Where, where, do, you, where do you get that from? There's got to be some standard that we can come back to. Every belief system has that. Some standard that you come back to to say, this is what we believe is true. And that's why it's so important for us to be able to believe that, the, that what the Bible says is true. Hopefully, this moves you just a little bit closer to believing that if that's been a doubt for you. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you breathed into the, the authors and that they diligently recorded that for us. We thank you, Lord, that you, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, you have worked through all of this process to bring us your word, that we might know the character of who you are, that we might know who we as humans are, that we might understand the relationship between you, God, and us, that we might understand our brokenness. In essence, Lord, that we might understand the gospel and that we can stand on your word that it's true. Thank you for that, Lord. Amen.